0: Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ. Take our seat. I feel impressed this morning to move us quickly to what the Lord would say. Um, So I'm going to dismiss the kids. You can head to children's ministry. And I want to let the adults in on what I'll request that you pray for right now. Um, I see the Lord standing among His churches to speak. And I want us to hear. I want Him to speak so that we hear. We're going to read this morning the the message that he had to the to the church of Ephesus, but there is there's a message this morning for the church in Spotsylvania. Because the Lord, all glory be to Christ, stands with sword in his mouth and eyes like burning fire and his face radiant as the sun to address us. And I can hardly stand. Let us pray. Lord, I I pray that as you speak, because you do speak through your word, yours is not a failure of speech. Pray that as you speak, we would listen. Or that you would open our our hearts, open our ears, As you say here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, Lord, incline our hearts that we could hear and that that two-edged sword would pierce precisely where you would want it to go. Lord, that you would bring a kind of clear conviction and quick sweet repentance where we need or that you would yourself encourage us by your word we recognize that we are in your presence this morning that you stand among your churches and we ask that you would speak to each here in Christ's name amen Most of us come in to church, I hope, I trust, hoping to hear what the Lord would have so that we can grow, so that we can follow Jesus. But very often what will sneak into those thoughts is a kind of individualistic approach. What do I need this morning from the Lord? And I think the first thing the Lord has for us this morning is to recognize that he is writing to churches. And what the Lord has written, we should hear. He is concerned for the health of his churches, not just his people. You understand what I'm saying? Healthy believers are about building healthy churches, not just being healthy believers. And indeed, healthy churches are what helps to produce healthy believers. So this morning, the Lord's going to address us on what it means to be a healthy church. I wonder if you were to, before we read and before we listen, if you were to, to jot down what does it mean to be a healthy church? I wonder what, I wonder what you would write. What kind of things come to mind that, that need to be there for a church to be, to be healthy? I wonder then if we took our list and, and showed it to the Lord how He would judge our list what it means to be a healthy church. Well, the Lord is among His churches to speak to His churches for the health of His churches. And so we're going to read this morning at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. So open your Bible, if you would. The living one who stands among His churches now addresses them with seven letters. We will get to the first one this morning a relatively short, short section, Revelation chapter 2, the first note or letter that the Lord dictates to John to write to his church. Follow along. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God's Word. section begins with Christ reminding us just of who's talking as He says, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. This shows the intimacy with which Christ is connected to His church. He's not off in heaven running the universe. He is dwelling among His local churches. Not just His universal church, which of course He does, but here He is pictured among the lampstands, dwelling with actual churches. Seeing what they're actually doing. And this is nothing but good news for the church, friends. That Christ is near is nothing but good news. But it is not easy news either. The Christ who comes is the Holy One before whom none can stand. And the way he just described himself with the, or the way that John just saw him, that vision he had of Christ was not the veiled Christ of veiled veiled glory of, of Matthew Mark Luke and John this is the reigning Christ and he has come with an aspect of a kind of military inspection of the troops and when the general shows up that's a that's good for the army the generals well connected but if you're standing there at attention as the general comes by you're not only aware that it's good that the general's there. There's an air of of inspecting what is his. And so the Lord is inspecting his churches, speaking then what he sees. He is near. He sees and he knows, which is why the first words of verse 2 and 3 both start with, I know. I know. I know because I'm right here. I know because I've been watching. I know because I've been present in your worship gathering. I am present when you scatter into the community in which you live. I am there. I am watching. And I know. How does he speak to the Ephesian church? What does he know about the Ephesian church? Well, he begins with two encouragements. He encourages them for their good works and for their sound doctrine. Good works and sound doctrine. First, good works. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And then in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. This is wonderful encouragement from the Lord. The, the church in Ephesus was, was full of good works. Acts of obedience to Christ. They were they were serving their community. They were raising their kids in a culture that's hostile to the gospel. They're sharing the gospel with with neighbors and with unsaved friends. They're they're laboring in their jobs, serving bosses that can be rude and clients that can be rude and working with coworkers who tease them about their ridiculous beliefs. They're laboring and they're doing so despite the stuff we all face and more. They're, they're laboring despite the difficulties of sickness and the, the sorrows of loss and the pains of old age and the temptations of youth and the pressures of culture and for them, the opposition of the state. He calls it toil. Hard labor. Sweating through the day. Laying down and not getting enough sleep at night. And getting up to do it again. And they're not complaining, remarkably. There's a, a patient endurance. They are enduring day after day after day, hard labor for their Savior, loving those right around them. Much to commend in their lifestyle. The lifestyle that Christians should live. Good works. And number two, sound doctrine. Verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. False apostles. The last we had heard of the church in Ephesus, Paul had stopped by. It's in the book of Acts. Paul had stopped by, and the Ephesian elders had come out to him outside of the city and met with him on the shoreline. Paul wasn't even going to make it to town. He was on his way to Jerusalem to get uh, bound up in chains. And so he gives them their final ever words from him. And he speaks to the elders and says, Watch out, because from among you wolves will rise up, not sparing the flock, devouring the sheep. Paul had seen it coming, and now here Christ addresses the same church about the same thing. False apostles had come. False teachers had been there. Twisted sermons had been preached. Unsound books had been written. And false gospels were being proclaimed. And the church was standing. They had heeded Paul's warning. And they were standing. And the false apostles had been thrown out of the church. And the false gospel had been rejected. They knew the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel, between the gospel and the progressive gospel, or the gospel and the prosperity gospel, or the gospel and the social gospel, or the gospel of grace versus the gospel of works They knew the difference. They knew the difference between true grace and cheap grace, the true grace that saves and calls us to holiness all at once, and the cheap grace It supposedly saves, but never calls you to holiness. This was a discerning church. They held fast to the truth of Christ, to the truth of his word. Then down in verse 6, Yet this you also have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans, we don't have a whole lot of historic information about them, but it seems as though they were teaching a kind of cheap grace gospel that essentially said, just add Jesus to your life and you can call yourself a Christian, you don't have to change anything. We may not have a lot of details about this, but the fact that Jesus says he hates their work. This was a gospel of syncretism that would basically say, you can go to church and call Jesus is Lord on Sunday, and then all week you can proclaim Caesar is Lord and get along in your society just fine. No worries. You can, you can worship Christ on Sunday, and you can go offer incense to Artemis throughout the week. You, you can worship Christ on Sunday and, and go live a promiscuous lifestyle. You can celebrate homosexuality. You can walk in heterosexual immorality and you can still be Christian syncretism Jesus hates those works the gospel that saves is the gospel that transforms the Lord who saves us saves us to make us holy he does not save us because we're holy heaven but he does save us to make us holy. And the church had clung to this truth. Picture this. The church had clung to this, even as supposed believers had been tempting them over and over with the ability to live and blend in with the culture around them. They they excluded then from their number, those who claimed to be Christians but weren't living like Christians should live. You should read church discipline into this. They had had pushed them out. The false apostles weren't attending church anymore. They also had been pushed out, called to repent, and then exposed as false teachers. Ephesus was a war zone. They had done battle, and Jesus commends them for the fight. But, Perhaps not hard for us to imagine as they struggle through these temptations from the world and people calling themselves Christians, tempting them away from Christ, and then false gospels being proclaimed and the need to just fight and fight and fight. Their love began to take hit. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, this is a love for Christ and a love for Christ's people. Speaking to both, both the, the first and second greatest commandments, right? The love for Christ and the love for each other. It's not wise for us to say, well, which of the two? Because he didn't say which of the two, but it's, 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 it's one love. A love for God is expressed in a love for each other. And they had had it, and now it was gone. Their works had become just works. They served, but without affection. They helped, but without compassion. They labored, but without heart. Their works had become hollowed out, a, a shell without the center. And it's so easy to see how they would have been tempted in this direction, as they needed to feel fight heresy, and fight the world from coming in. A kind of battlefield mentality had taken place. They weren't trusting each other. They weren't loving each other well. Their love for the Savior had cooled. Their love for each other had chilled, maybe slowly at first. But now it is to the level that the Lord says starkly, you have abandoned the love you had at first. It is a wake up call, look, stop, see, repent. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He calls the church to repent for their lovelessness. And he warns them that if they don't, He will remove the lampstand from its place. Now, what does that mean? This is symbolic language, right? But the the lampstand here is is symbolic of the fact that this is one of Jesus' churches that he dwells in the midst of. And it means here that in his eyes, they will stop being a church. And if you stop being a church in his eyes, you have truly ceased to be a church. He will remove from them the power of the Spirit. He will remove from them the presence of Christ who only dwells among the lampstands. The light of the world would be gone. They would no longer represent Him. Now, there may still be some structure in place. A building with a steeple may still be there. A road sign that says church on it and a community reputation. But there would be nothing of reality inside. So to review, Ephesus defended sound doctrine. Ephesus abounded in good works. And Ephesus lacked in love. Let us give an ear to what the Spirit says to the churches here. How would the Lord? Where would he commend us? Where would he warn us? Well, Ephesus defended sound doctrine. We are called to defend sound doctrine. We're called to preach from this book alone. I'm going to be careful how I walk out onto this ground. I think we defend sound doctrine here. To the extent that we do, that is a gift of those who've come before, who delivered to us the gospel of Christ, that we could celebrate it together. Praise God for that. And at a time when that is not the norm in our culture, the culture pushes hard for churches to compromise, to compromise on the authority of the Scripture, to compromise on the roles of men and women, to compromise on the categories of gender, to, co- to compromise on sexual practices. The pressure of the world and the culture is strong. And sadly, many, many churches have fallen. Many have abandoned the Word. Many have reduced their dependence on the Word. And horribly, in Spotsylvania right now, many a pastor stands out, stands up to preach without a Bible. Let us be grateful. Let us be prayerful about our future. That the Lord would keep us near His Word. That the Lord would give us discernment between truth and falsehood. That the Lord would give us courage to stand when the culture is hitting upon us. May this pulpit be destroyed and this tongue silent before the word is lost from this place. So they defended sound doctrine, good. They abounded in good works. I don't know how to compare us to the Ephesian church. We know very little about their works, but even if we knew more, I don't think the point is to compare us with the Ephesian church as much as to hear this as a word both of encouragement and exhortation from the Lord. I say encouragement because I cannot stand here and preach to this church as though there are no good works going on among you and through you and because of you. Very much like what I imagine the Ephesian church was doing. You are serving your community. You are raising your kids to follow Christ in the middle of a hostile culture. You're sharing the gospel with your neighbors, your friends that don't know Jesus. You're laboring in your jobs with diligence and with excellence to serve those that that are your clients and to work hard for your boss and to try to make Jesus be known some way in the way that you're doing that. And you're doing that despite the difficulties of being sick and the pains of old age And the temptations of youth, the pressures of the culture, to God be the glory. And let's keep going. Let's keep going, friends. What does it look like to run hard? To patiently endure? That involves a long run. And so my my prayer is that the Lord would strengthen us to continue in our run. I'd like to spend the most time on just the third one here. So they defended sound doctrine, abounded in good works. They lacked in love. I believe that the Lord has given us a love for each other here. And for that, I'm grateful. I don't see this as an immediate, current failure of our church but I do see it as a current threat for our church. How strong is our love for Christ? How strong is our love for each other? Our love for Him is not so strong that we can be dismissive of His warnings. Is our love for each other so strong that one conflict tomorrow wouldn't put it sorely to the test. So let us hear the warning that Christ gave to the Ephesians and it is compelling to me because particularly I do think we're we're pursuing sound doctrine. I think we're known for that as pursuing sound doctrine. Good. But here's what he said to Ephesus. Sound doctrine? Check. Good works? Check. No love? No love? No love? No church? do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The Lord himself would come and remove it for lack of love. Love is not an optional add-on for a church. A kind of nice bonus peripheral thing that a church, it is central to the existence of a church. That that church loved Jesus and love each other. If you lose that, you lose everything. Right? This could, you could go to 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love? Astounding gong, a sounding gong, a resounding cymbal. He calls us to love. And in our day, we see churches falling left and right. It feels like all around us, for lack of sound doctrine. Indeed, it is so. But false doctrine is not the only danger that a church would face. And it is not the nearest danger that we would face. Here is the nearest danger for a room full of sinners seeking to follow Christ together. It is that our hearts would grow cold towards Him and towards each other. And so let us be exhorted, dear church, Dear church, dear church, love one another. Keep short accounts with each other. Refuse to hear gossip, much less to speak it. Forgive quickly. Recall often what you were forgiven of. Recall often Recall often what you were forgiven of so that you will have a deep well of forgiveness from which you will need to draw and offer to others. Let us act like men. Let us act like women. This is no time for a middle school mentality to relationships. Expect that you're going to be sinned against. Expect, too, that you are going to sin against others. And be ready to admit it when it happens. Be ready to admit it and to confess and to repent and to restore. And when somebody sins against you, which is going to happen, be quick to forgive at their first motion towards you. Be quick to forgive. Be ready. Be vigilant. Love grows cold, and we have an enemy who tries to make it grow cold. This is one of the primary strategies of the enemy in the era of the church. Division. Division, division, division. If you've been in a church that failed, chances are good this was at least part of the equation because it's how the enemy works. He sows strife. He inflames anger. He makes it so our our toes get stepped on. And here's what most mature Christians do. Mature. They don't lash out in anger because their toes got stepped on. And feeling good that they haven't lashed out, they simply withdraw. And their love grows cold. Friends, This is a danger for the church. That our love towards each other would grow cold. So, wake up knowing you have an enemy. Wake up knowing he's going to work to separate you from brothers and sisters in this room. I know we've got members of the church and attenders of the church. Let me speak specifically to members of the church and say, You bear a responsibility to your brothers and sisters to assume the best, to go to them when you're offended, to overlook what you can overlook, and to forgive over and over and over again. See, the enemy here doesn't just target pastors. You've got the bullseye on you. How will the enemy attack Mercy Hill? your relationship with someone else in this room. And one bit of strife, and then teams begin to develop, and gossip begins to spread, and love grows cold. Dear friends, we have an enemy. Wake up knowing it. Wake up ready. Today is not a good day to be easily offended. Today is not a good day to decide I'm not forgiving today. Today. Today's not a good day to retreat into the corner and refuse to pursue a brother or a sister in Christ. So, let us cultivate and maintain and vigorously defend a love for each other. And let us cultivate and maintain and vigorously defend a love for our Savior as well. This this is where it all starts right here. Our love for Christ. This is it. You have a love for Christ, that's going to overflow into sound doctrine. You're going to love sound doctrine. You have a love for Christ, it's going to overflow into good works throughout your life. You have a love for Christ, that's going to overflow in your love for each other. And so friends, let us love our Savior. This morning's time of worship with you was so sweet as I just heard coming over my head the voices, the voices, the voices of those who love Jesus. Oh, let us love Jesus together. Because this preserves and protects and keeps us, and frankly, He's worth loving. So how, how do we cultivate a love for Christ? Cultivate a love for Christ by contemplating His love for you. That's how we do it. Contemplate again, and again and again, go back go back to that well and recall what have you been forgiven of. Recall the magnitude of His grace. We have no Savior that is simply a dispenser of doctrine, though He is the truth. We have no Savior who simply calls us to good works, though He is our master. We have a Savior who is our Savior, who while we were His enemies, came running after us. What goodness of God. While we hated God and hated one another, Christ came and bore our sins upon his body on the cross. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. May our care groups be places of worship where we gather yet again to say yet again, Jesus, And we gather together on Sunday. May may the praises of Christ resound in this room. Jesus, thank you. That our love for Christ would be rekindled. This is not a one-time thing, right? This is the tending of a campfire throughout the night. The long night of this life. Adding a little more fuel. Adding a little more fuel. Getting up again and adding a little more fuel. Because it tends to go out over time. Don't forsake the gathering together. That together we could pursue Christ and love Him more as long as it's called today. He ends with a promise, not a rebuke. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, some are going to immediately have big theological questions about this kind of a promise. Are are you saying we're saved by works? No. Jesus is not saying that we're saved by works. All right? He knows the gospel. All right. But the, but the, the gospel that saves is the same one that transforms. And he's speaking now to those in the trenches, to those who have have fought heresy and have sought purity and are now being called to love each other. And he says to those weary saints, oh, have I got something in store for you. Oh, when you conquer, you're not going to believe it. You're going to get to eat of the tree of life that's in the the paradise of God. You, You hear the Genesis echoes there, right? This was the tree of life that they were not allowed to eat from in the garden. God threw people out of the garden, put angels up at the gates so that they could not enter and eat of that tree of life and live forever. That tree He promises. That eternal life in the paradise and presence of God Himself. What hope we have, dear friends. So, as we seek to labor, as we seek to love each other, as we seek to love our Savior, let's keep our eyes up ahead. There's not that many days left. Not that many days you have to forgive. Not that many days you have to labor. Not that many days you have to seek to love Christ by the eyes of faith. The eyes of sight are coming. And that day is coming. And that day will make all of these days pale. Lord, speed that day. Worship team, come on up. Let's stand. Before we sing together, I wonder a couple things. I wonder if there is repentance that is needed. Perhaps you have become aware of holding on to an offense. Can we just declare an amnesty? Somebody comes to you and repents of something, you ready to forgive? All right? If you need to go and repent, go do that. Your brother or sister is a brother or sister in Christ. So, Lord, we come to you right now and where there is need for repentance. Lord, help us respond. Let us not stand proudly on sound doctrine, but stand humbly amazed at what you've given and dependent that you will continue to provide tomorrow. And Lord, would you give us the strength to humble ourselves before each other To to give and receive forgiveness. To love each other well. To not give the enemy a foothold. Oh Lord, keep our love strong. For each other and for you. And now, help us contemplate once again your love for us. that our our last thoughts here are not about our failure, but about your goodness and kindness and mercy. Receive now our praise. Amen.